3. Philippians 3, and we looked at this passage last week and uh, failed to address everything in it. So we take another week, Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11, focusing mainly on that second or that last paragraph that we see in verses 7 through 11. But we'll read Philippians 3, uh, verses 1 through 11. And we do so trusting in God that he gives us his word for our good, uh, to feed us, to build us up, to build his church. Here we find God's word, not man's, but God's. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the film Chariots of Fire, there's an Olympian sprinter, not the main character, but an Olympian sprinter who is of Jewish descent, and he's made it his life's aim to prove his doubters wrong and to, in a sense, have a a voice against some of the rampant anti-Semitism at that time in our history or in the world's history by winning an Olympic medal as a sprinter. And he doesn't just win any medal. He ends up winning the gold. And this was a priceless treasure that he sought, or at least he thought so in his own mind and in his own heart. But after he achieves this feat, we find him walking away the very day that he has won. We find him walking away with sorrow. And one of his teammates tries to stop him and talk some sense into him. You just won a gold medal. 
and someone stops him and says, one day you too will win, and then you will realize that it's a difficult thing to swallow. Difficult thing to swallow, to, to realize that that which you had sought as a priceless treasure, something for which you had been working your entire lifetime, you realize that it will not satisfy you in the way that you had hoped. This Olympian wins the gold medal and he realizes in his heart anti-Semitism will probably continue. Many people may not even respect him any more than they did already. And so he finds in this treasure, or what he thought was such a treasure, that he cannot treasure it. He cannot treasure the treasure. And what we find at work in Philippians chapter 3, in this marvelous passage, this wonderful passage that encapsulates really all of Paul's life and really his, one of his greatest apologetics, his cases for Christ, that in Christ he found the greatest treasure in all of the world that anyone could ever find. He found it in Jesus Christ, a treasure that can be treasure, a treasure in which we can have confidence, in which we can delight and take our time to delight, and it becomes our our aim to know Christ more, those hearts that have been changed by faith in him. And that is what we make our great aim, as is put before us in this passage. We make it our aim to know Christ more. And that happens as we realize three things, how we gain Christ, how we are found in him, and the path that we walk in order to become more acquainted with him. This is all about living according to God's grace, according to God's matchless grace. And so we see those three things in our text this morning, how we gain Christ, how we are found in him, and what path we walk in order to know him more. First idea is this, we gain Christ by renouncing all of his competitors. We gain Christ by renouncing all of his competitors. That's the heart of faith, a heart that renounces anything that would compete with Jesus Christ. Let's recount briefly uh, what we saw last week at work in this passage. Paul writes, as we see in the end of verse 1, this is a safeguard for you. So he's warning them against something, against a danger. And the danger that he writes against was a group that had come into the New Testament church and was trying to influence people with false teaching. They were called the the Judaizing party or the Judaizing group. And they would go to Gentiles and they would say, your faith in Christ is fine, that's okay, but you need something else. You need something else in addition to it. You need to submit to circumcision. You need to submit to Old Testament ceremonial laws. And so the Apostle Paul took a a fierce stand against this, uh, this false teaching By saying you all have, they've missed the point. They have not seen the fulfillment of circumcision in Jesus Christ. And they are operating by a completely different principle. Remember last week we talked about the two principles. The principles of grace and law. He's saying they are not living according to the principle of grace. They're living according to the principle of law, of works, of self-righteousness, of living by the mindset that human beings can establish their own righteousness before God through human effort. And so we have shown and we have seen 
that we are to live according to the principle of grace, something different entirely. The standing that we have before God is granted to us by grace. And grace is all-encompassing and it is total. It occupies every sphere of the mind and life of the Christian to operate and to live by the principle of grace. And Paul shows us this by recounting his own history. He says, let me tell you about the life I lived. And then he sets himself up as a hypothetical member of the Judaizing party. And he says, if I were of this group, I would be, uh, on, I would be their poster boy, in a sense. I would be the one on the billboard saying, come join the Judaizing party. Here's the Apostle Paul. Because he comes from the right bloodline. He lived according to the right zeal. He had all of the proper respect for the Old Testament ceremonies. And so uh, he says, before the law, according to legalistic righteousness, I was blameless. And that's not him saying that God would have seen him as blameless looking at him through the law of righteousness. But rather that if he were in this group, this Judaizing party, he would have been seen and pointed to as faultless, as blameless. But then in verse 7, you have this great reversal. Often when you see the word but show up in the scriptures, we're talking about this massive shift from one mindset to another. And that's what we see in verse 7. There's a great reversal. Whatever was to my profit, whatever was to my gain, I had to consider it loss. I thought it was to my gain and I had to come to the realization that it was a loss for me. So he's showing us what it means uh, to live according to the principle of grace. And then he shows us that living according to grace is the most blessed existence that you could have because it gives you these three matchless, unsurpassed blessings. Gaining Christ, being found in him, and knowing him. We're forced to reckon with how those things are attained. And that's what we are dealing with today. So the bottom line of what Paul says in this passage when it comes to gaining Christ is we gain Christ when we renounce all of Christ's competitors. The human heart in its sinfulness always wants to creep back to live according to the principle of law, to live according to the principle of of works, even those of us who know grace, who know Christ, in our hearts, we want to think or we want to crawl back to the thinking, the mindset where our own standing is established in some sense by ourselves. We say, Yeah, I understand that, that, that Jesus is in some sense my mediator, but really, uh, my standing before God, there's something that I contribute to it. Now, of course, when we talk about this, we're not talking about having God's fatherly displeasure in our lives because of constant and habitual sin. That's another matter. But when it comes to the courtroom, uh, the legal matter of our standing before God, it is established in Christ by grace through faith. And so Paul says that is how you gain Christ. You swear off all confidence in your flesh. The life, the heart that is filled with faith in Christ, swears off all confidence in the flesh. Samuel Rutherford says this, I see Christ's love as so kingly that it will not abide a competitor. It must have a throne all alone in the soul. 
Christ is to reign alone in your soul, in your heart, because of what he gives to us by his grace, righteousness, forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. But we're wired to go the other way, to crawl back to the principle of works. We shared a couple quotes last week from a Chinese Reformed pastor, Wang Yi. He says this, We are addicted to declaring ourselves righteous. We are addicted to moral self-reliance, addicted to distinguishing ourselves by being good people. Moralism makes us addicted to our own righteousness, and only the gospel can cut off that addiction. The gospel cuts us off from living that way. That's why we need to live and breathe in the language, the terms of the gospel. That's why we need to Live our lives in Christ according to the gospel and never leave it. Never leave that ground. And so in verses 7 and 8, Paul is continually saying the same thing in different ways. Whatever was to my gain according to self-righteousness, I had to consider that loss. And then I had to realize that everything in my life was loss compared to knowing Christ. And then I had to realize that everything I wanted to bring before God was garbage. It was rubbish. It was nothing. He swore off confidence in the flesh. Why? Because he found something better. And it confronts us with that truth. What, does, what do you do when you find something better? You start acting according to the knowledge that you have obtained. You start living according to the knowledge that you have obtained. Very simple. You find a better grocery store, you start shopping at that one. Right? The parables of the kingdom put this uh, on display for us in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 13, where he says, the kingdom of heaven is better than anything else you could find. And so listen to these two short parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It was worth it. It was worth it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding the pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. It was worth it. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is worth it. Paul is saying something very similar. Since life in the kingdom of God is worth it, and life in the kingdom of God is found by grace, through faith, in Christ, Swear off confidence in everything else. Put all of your hope, all of your trust in Christ alone. My favorite part of the wedding ceremony, wedding vows, when the bride and groom say, and forsaking all others. That's what makes love in a marriage extremely special. That you stare into the face of the one across from you and you are saying, To the disadvantage of everyone else in the world, I'm going to love you this way. I will forsake all others to love you in this way. And that's what happens to a heart that sees Jesus Christ and sees the worth and the value that we find in him. Others will be forgotten. Forsake all others. That is how we gain Christ. Secondly, we are told here how we are found in Christ. So we gain Christ by forsaking all competitors, renouncing all competitors. That's the heart of faith. 
Secondly, we are found in him by trusting in the treasure. We are found in him by trusting in the treasure. And verse 9 is where we see that great blessing of being found in Christ. There's a pastor this week who pointed out, as watching a little video, and pointed out that when you see that, that passage or that phrase in the New Testament, being found, the passive voice of find, I was found in Christ, there's almost a, a surprise there. The Apostle Paul is communicating sort of a surprising reality, that it should be surprising to us that we are found in him, and we are found in Christ by trusting in the treasure. We should read this passage and say, I want to know how I am found in him. Paul's saying this will give you uh, the greatest joy you could ever know, uh, being found in Christ. And so we are found in him by trusting in the treasure. That does not mean that we trust solely in the inheritance that we are given in Christ. First Peter talks about the riches that are laid up for us, more precious than fine gold. No, what I'm saying is that we find Christ as the true treasure of all. We must see him as supremely valuable above all else. He is the true treasure. and He is not simply our ticket to eternal life. He is not simply our ticket in the door. He is the one upon whom we set our affections because only he can truly satisfy us. Faith, of course, is the means by which we grasp hold of Christ. That is the gospel. You're a sinner. You trust in his work for you and you grasp hold of him by faith. But something about faith that we learn in this passage is that faith is the response of the heart. It's the natural response of the heart that finds Christ to be the greatest treasure of all. The heart that sees Christ as supremely valuable, that is the heart of faith. It's the one who goes and sells all that he has to buy that field and sells all that he has to buy that pearl of great price. This is what Paul did. This is what we are to do. Of course, in the midst of all of this, Paul is clarifying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clarifying uh, in no uncertain terms the gospel of grace, what we call justification by faith. Last week we talked about Martin Luther and how in the late medieval church there was, there was a systemic problem in the church that what was being declared from pulpits was that you are saved from your sin by having faith in Christ and that kind of gets you into the sphere of being able to be saved and then you add upon that your own works of righteousness. You need to cooperate with grace. And the story of Martin Luther, the most torturous phrase in his life was exactly what we read in Romans chapter 3 this morning. The righteousness of God. It tortured him. He despised that phrase because it stood in front of him as something that he would never attain. It's like the carrot before the horse that the horse chases and never, and never gets to. The righteousness of God. You think to himself, I'm never going to get to that. I'm never going to attain to this righteousness of God. And as violently as he despised that phrase, that is how wonderfully he embraced it when the gospel came to him in a fresh new light. 
The righteousness of God is something given to me. The righteousness of God is something that comes through faith in Christ. It's freely granted to me. It's, as he said, it's an alien righteousness. It comes from outside of me. And it's imputed to me and to my account. And because of that, he rejoiced. Paul is affirming all of that in this passage. The gospel of grace through faith in Christ. Article 22 of our confession affirms the very same. It says that we believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts an upright faith. Right? So the sovereign work of God, which embraces Jesus Christ with all of his merits, appropriates him, and seeks nothing more besides him. Therefore, we say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone or by faith apart from works. However, to speak more clearly, we do not mean that faith itself justifies us, right? Faith doesn't become the work that God looks upon and says that's righteousness. No, faith merely receives, it rests upon, it trusts in Christ, and everything he has achieved is given to us. So Paul is affirming that in no uncertain terms. He's also saying that we see, the heart of faith sees that Christ is best. Christ is best. The dilemma of our society is that there is such a a rampant blindness to supernatural things, to the things of God, to the things of the spiritual, that for people to grasp that the true treasure is in Christ is something that's far beyond the mindset for most people. And of course, we trust in the sovereign work of God, but yet we still can look around and see the ways in which people are finding their treasure in things other than Christ. There's a really interesting article in The Atlantic this week, which is not normally where I go for my, for my own reading, but this was a fascinating article talking about those who now identify as having no religious background, no religious affiliation. And it said this, Making friends as an adult without a weekly congregation is hard. Establishing a weekend routine to soothe Sunday afternoon nerves is hard. Reconciling the overwhelming sense of life's importance with the universe's indifference to human suffering is hard. Although belief in God is no absolute antidote for these problems, religion is more than just belief. It's a bundle, a theory of the world, a community, a social identity, a means of finding peace and purpose, and a weekly routine. Those like me who have largely rejected this package deal often find themselves shopping a la carte for meaning, community, and routine to fill a faith-shaped void. Politics is a religion, work is a religion, exercise is a church, and not looking at their phone for several consecutive hours is a Sabbath. American nuns, that's those who have no religious affiliation, may well build successful secular systems of belief and purpose and community, but imagine what a devout believer might think. Millions of Americans have abandoned religion only to recreate it everywhere they look. That's right. The human heart has to worship. We are beings that are created to worship. We can do nothing but worship. We will worship that which we love the most. And the gospel is that Christ is worth your time loving. 
He is the true treasure, supreme above all. And the Apostle Paul was looking out at the world and he was seeing, uh, searching for answers as to those who reject Christ. And what he, sa- what he comes to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is that they are blinded to the knowledge of the glory of Christ. In other words, they have not seen him as supremely valuable. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul says that when the gospel shines in our hearts, when God creates it, when the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts true faith, what we have is the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ made manifest to someone. Someone comes to the realization that Christ is supremely valuable, the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. To have faith means that God, by the Holy Spirit, has shown me, has taught me that Christ is worth more than all the rest of the world put together. We trust in the treasure. Third, and finally, we know Christ as we walk the road that he walked. We know Christ more as we walk the road that he walked. This passage impresses upon us not only gaining Christ, not only being found in him, but knowing him and knowing him more. It's a daily thing. It's a, it's a, it's a continual thing, isn't it? It's not something that you, you just sort of uh, come to, to reckon that Christ is great, that Christ is best once, and you sort of put that on the shelf. No, you continually consider how wonderful he is. There's one, pass, or there's one translation that puts verse 10 this way. We make it our aim to know him. In other words, we make it our aim to know him more. This is what happens when we live according to grace, according to the principle of grace. We know Christ and we know him more. That desire to know him more comes about largely uh, when we see him as the true treasure. We want to know him. Paul speaks about three things that specifically we are to know. The first is Christ personally. I want to know Christ, verse 10. Second is the power of his resurrection. The third is the fellowship of his sufferings. So we know Christ, we know power, we know a sharing or a fellowship in his sufferings. Those three things work together in order to show us that life in Christ, the Christian life is not a a triumphalistic life of prosperity. It's largely a life of suffering before glory. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying... That in this life, of course, he he knows about the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Paul's perspective is often forward-looking. It's often looking forward to the eternal life that we have free from the curse, free from sin. But what he is saying is that this life, if you want to know Christ more in this life, you will know him more as you become acquainted with the road that he walked for your salvation. This life is not one of triumphalistic prosperity but if Christ is the treasure of our souls if we have seen him as supremely valuable then the cry of the heart is that 
you would want, you would desire to know him as much as you can in this life, to become acquainted with the life that he lived. And Paul is saying it's a life of suffering before glory. All of Philippians is either leading up to or in the shadow of that Christ hymn in chapter 2. He was in the form of God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited. But what did he do? He humbled himself and now he is exalted. And so the life that we are often called to live, a life that is marked by pain, by difficulty, by suffering, the great advantage of those who know Christ is that you can enter into those circumstances of your life and you can say that as you suffer, before you experience the glory, the exaltation of God, as you suffer, you are becoming more acquainted with your Savior because that is what he did during this life for you. Paul is saying the fellowship of his sufferings is a blessing of the Christian life. Suffering causes us to know Christ more. And so Paul is talking about power. And we think of power as perhaps escaping suffering. And what this passage teaches us is that in Christ, we are not given a power to escape suffering. We are given a power to endure suffering because that is what our Savior did. So it becomes our great delight to walk the road that he walked, not because in doing so, we are earning our way to heaven, but because in this life, that is the best way to know Christ more. And that is the best way for the power of God to be manifested, to be manifested in our weakness. So that's the great blessing that God gives to us. That as he calls us to suffer, the blessing that we have is that in that, we are learning about our Savior and we are knowing him more. We are communing with him more. Romans 8 says this, the spirit bears witness that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If you treasure Christ, you would rather know him. You would rather have the fellowship of his sufferings than to walk through this world with relative ease without him. That's the great blessing of knowing Christ. So we gain Christ by renouncing all of his competitors. We are found in Christ by trusting in the treasure. We know Christ more as we experience the fellowship of his sufferings, as we walk the road that he walked, as we walk on the path of the cross, imitating our Savior, trusting always in the work of his grace. Samuel Rutherford says, we need not fear crosses or sigh or be sad for anything that is on this side of heaven if we have Christ. For to live on Christ's love is a king's life. So treasure Christ. And if you treasure Christ, you will make it your aim to know him. You will take great delight in being found in him and gaining him. And you will be glad to know him walking the road that he walked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for this word. We pray that you will feed us by your grace in Christ Jesus. And we trust you as we look to your word. We receive it and we make it the cornerstone of our faith as we look to Christ, the finisher 
of our faith. We pray in his name. Amen.